So good to see you all. And for those of you who are online, glad you could join us. And uh, this morning, let's open our Bibles to John's Gospel. We're going to read through the very last section of of this uh, first chapter in John's Gospel. We've spent uh, quite a bit of time in the first chapter. And the reason for that is because there's a lot there. And we don't want to just gloss over it. And, uh, you know, I love the word that it is powerful. And it's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides apart between the soul and the spirit, between the bones and the marrow. It gets right in between all those areas in our life. And this morning we're going to take communion, and I'm looking forward to that. But if let's look at uh, the first chapter of John. We're going to look at the first, from verse 35 to the end of the chapter. Let's read that. Let me read it to you, actually. John chapter 1, verse 35. And of course, we were looking at John the Baptist's ministry, and his ministry was very short, very brief in time, but it was very powerful. Don't ever judge a ministry by how many people are involved in it, or how long it lasts, or how short it lasts. That's for God to judge. We tend to do that because we're Americans, and we're not alone. Other people in the world, other cultures, they, they, they gauge things just like we, because the human heart is the same. We, we gauge what's good by how much length of time it lasted, how big it is. And those are really erroneous metrics when it comes to the things of God. We have to be very careful about that. So John the Baptist comes on the scene and he introduces his disciples to Jesus. And we saw last time we were together that Jesus was baptized of John. And John's going to make a declaration later, and we're going to see him slowly fading, actually pretty quickly fading from the scene, because his mission was over. He was strictly to be a herald. He was the one to go before the king, as prophesied in Malachi. He was to be the one, the messenger, going before Christ, making the rough places plain and the, the, the mountains and the valleys low, and just kind of preparing people for the Messiah, that when he came, he could basically hand her off to him. And I like that. He's preparing, and, he, and he's not so caught up in his own ministry and his own self that he thought to himself, no, this is, this is my ministry, Jesus. I can do this. I can continue doing these baptisms and bringing people to repentance. That's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to continue doing it. There was none of that in John. He knew very well from the very beginning of his birth, the angel Gabriel came and spoke to his parents and told him exactly what his mission, his ministry would be, and he was faithful to complete that. And when the time came when his cousin... His cousin, Jesus, came to him there in Bethabara as he was baptizing. He looked at him, and the Spirit and the God the Father spoke to him and said, That's the one. And Jesus was baptized. But John's ministry was going to decrease, but now Jesus' ministry was going to increase. That's always the way it has to be. We have to decrease, and he increases. Anytime there's an increase in me or increase in anybody else and a diminishing of Jesus... That is not good. But when there is a decrease in us and an increase in him, he is glorified. And then it's up to him how that ministry looks. Always be careful of that. All that's glitter and all that's gold is not necessarily the best. So John now, it says in verse 35, Again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Actually, he said that in a previous verse, so I'll just recap it because I like it better. Uh, the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. And they came, and they saw where he was staying, and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first finds his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. And the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said, Behold, an Israel indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What an interesting uh, passage, isn't it? And, and really it's in this passage that we really get an introduction to the disciples. In fact, if you were to combine all the Gospels together and put together a harmony of the Gospels, this is the very first time that we see any of the disciples mentioned. Any of them. In fact, in, in these verses from 35 to 51, we're going to see that we're introduced to Andrew and Peter, and we're introduced to Nathaniel. But notice that Philip is the only one at this time, at this moment, that Jesus says, come and follow me. It's amazing to me how Jesus can look at these four men, and he knew, and we know that in time, he would call all of these men to be his disciples and his apostles. But for some reason, he looks at Philip, and all, Peter's there, Andrew's there, Nathaniel, or Bartholomew, some call him. They're all there. And he didn't say, come guys, all four of you follow me. No, he looked at Philip for some reason. He said, you follow me. And it was some time later, we don't know exactly the time frame, but later on, it, it refers to us in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, Jesus does call Peter. And he does call Andrew. He actually specifically says, follow me. Follow me. You'll be fishers of men. Put down your nets. He didn't even actually command them to put down their nets. He just said, follow me. And they willingly laid their nets down and let their father continue with the business. But Peter did that. Andrew did that. And, and they were brothers. And then James and John, brothers as well in the fishing business there around Galilee in the northern part of Israel. They too, when Jesus said, follow me, they left all their nets and they followed him. And then later on, even still, Jesus would call Matthew in Matthew chapter 9. And it wouldn't be until later on after that, in Mark chapter 3, 
chronologically that Jesus would call all of them. He would call those six that we just named, and he would also name six others that weren't there in the beginning. Thomas was one of them. Um, Nathaniel actually was. James, the son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus. Simon the Canaanite. And of course, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. The man who would betray Jesus. But let's look at verse 35 here. It says again the next day, John, John the Baptist here, not the author of this book, but John the Baptist, he stood with two of his disciples. We find out in verse 40 that one of his disciples was Andrew, Peter's brother. And notice in verse 36, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. And really from this point onward, again, John the Baptist's ministry would decrease And he would be exalting Christ and getting his followers to follow Jesus Christ. And John was very much aware of this. In John 3, verse 30, he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. And notice what he said, Behold the Lamb of God. This is kind of a unique title. Think of yourself, because the the, the crucifixion hasn't happened. The resurrection certainly hasn't happened. This is in the infancy of the ministry of Jesus. And so when he he says to his followers, behold the lamb, that's very loaded with a lot of information, wouldn't you say? For a Jew to hear that would conjure up in his heart a number of things. Certainly, it would conjure up the idea of the exodus and And it would bring to mind that Passover meal when the lamb would be killed and the blood would be put on the lentil of the doorposts. The whole phrase is very foreboding of death, not one of the opposite. It was very foreboding of death. Behold the lamb of God. A lamb of God is going to be crucified or is going to be slaughtered. And John, through the Spirit of God, was already prophesying. Can you see that? I mean, if you look at it with fresh eyes, remember, you and I are so familiar with the crucifixion, the resurrection. Go back in time to this moment. None of that was even on the radar screen for these guys. They, were, they didn't even still, even at the end of Jesus' ministry, they were still trying to figure out who he was. But at this beginning, John the Baptist, filled with the Spirit of God, could say, Behold the Lamb. He knew exactly what his ministry was about. He knew exactly who this was, what he was going to do, what he was going to accomplish. And I imagine when he said that phrase, they're kind of scratching their head going, that's kind of peculiar. Behold the Lamb of God. And in an earlier verse, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it just kind of glanced off of them and they just kind of didn't think much about it. But John was prophesying knowing very well what was going to happen. And notice, as Jesus walked, he said to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God. Remember, John the Baptist was the voice, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. The the passage in Isaiah 40, verse 3, which we looked at the last time we were together. And because he was the forerunner of Christ, of course, he was speaking prophetically. And nobody knew, I'm sure, at that point, what this was all about. But he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And when you think of that, it ought to bring to memory certainly Genesis chapter 22. You remember 
Genesis chapter 22 is when uh, Abraham offered up Isaac, and right as he was about to complete the act of sacrificing his son, because the Lord had told him to do that, of course the Lord knew that he would intervene and wouldn't sacrifice his only begotten son, Isaac. But as he was ready to thrust that knife into his son's chest, the Lord stopped him and said, Abraham, stop. And of course the Lord knew that Abraham would stop, but Abraham was ready to go through it. And that's the difference. God knew what he was going to do. He was willing to do that. And he said that God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. God will provide himself. And it was nearly 2,000, or actually several thousand years later, probably 4,000, that Jesus, that another father would take his only begotten son, except this time when it came forth and to put him on the cross to, to, to deal that death blow there was nobody stopping him and saying, don't do it. Actually, the act was performed. But as John is saying to his disciples, behold the lamb, certainly they're thinking about Genesis chapter 22. Certainly they might be thinking about Isaiah 53 where it talked about the suffering servant, the one who would carry our sorrows, the one who would be stricken, smitten, and afflicted of God, the one who was wounded for our transgressions, who was bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. This very one that John is pointing to and saying, Behold the Lamb of God. They are looking and saying, All of a sudden, maybe perhaps, or maybe not, but they should have. Maybe John filled in the blanks for them later on. We don't know. In 1 Peter, Peter says, he says, Know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and spot. And that's who Jesus is and was. And when you think of the very moment that Jesus, or actually he was probably two years old at the time. Remember the kings of the east came and they offered gifts before Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And what were those gifts? Myrrh and frankincense and gold. And myrrh is uh, an interesting thing. It's not only made, uh, uh, it's not only a costly perfume, but it's, it's also used for an antiseptic in embalming. And so as these kings were giving this myrrh to Jesus as an infant, I wonder if in it also there is the germ of this foreboding of death and this one who would take the sin of the world upon his shoulders. And certainly we know when Jesus was crucified, before he was buried, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, what did they do? They brought a hundred pounds of this myrrh and aloes and they wrapped Jesus in in the cloths and they put him in the tomb. And notice in verse 37, it says, The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. These two disciples not only literally began following him, but they began following him in the, in the, in the way of a disciple, the way a disciple would. Their relationship with John the Baptist was going to diminish. Now they were going to be fixed with Jesus. And that's the way it ought to be for us. There ought to be no human element in our life that we put in front of Jesus. 
You know, in some Christian circles, there's people in the middle between you and God, priests, that you've got to go to them, and then they will speak to God on behalf of you. No, you don't have to do that. There's one intermediary between us and God, and that is Christ Jesus. There's nobody else in the way. There should be nobody else in the way. In fact, that's one of the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection. Wasn't the veil torn from top to bottom? And that thing was very tall. Believe me, there's no man on a ladder going up there trying to tear a cloth that's about that thick or thicker. There were several cloths in between. You're not tearing that with your hands, not even with an industrial scissor. It's just not happening. God the Father did that. But as a result of that, we can go right into the Holy of Holies. We can go right into the throne room of God and pray. We don't have to go through anybody else. There's no other intermediary but Jesus. Amen? I love that. Verse 38, it says, Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, he said, What do you seek? And they said, Rabbi, which is to say, uh, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? This may seem like a very odd question for Jesus to ask, but it is a good one for them and it's a good one for us today. Who and what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Are you seeking the Jesus of the Bible or a Jesus of your own making? In our culture today, in the church, not necessarily this church, I'm talking about the church in totality, that's a very good question. What are you seeking? And for different churches, you might get different answers. Hopefully they all say Jesus. But do you worship a Jesus that allows you to live and be intimate with your girlfriend or boyfriend outside of marriage? Jesus would not condone it. It's a sin, right? It needs to be turned from, just like any other sin. Is that the kind of Jesus that you worship that says it's okay? And there are people who say that. Well, we love each other. Yeah, you love each other, but you're living in rebellion. And there's a lot of things wrong with that, and we don't have time to go into that. But is that the Jesus that you serve that says it's okay to take... um, Uh, medicated drugs that are, I'm talking about the really illicit stuff, like marijuana and stuff like that. Aren't there other things that you can use? Why is it that when this thing was, you know, um, made available and even made legal in some states, instead of using other drugs, that can certainly kill the pain for maybe a cancer person who's terminal and they're really going through a lot of pain. There's other things that they can take. But why is it that everybody flocks to marijuana? Because it's the forbidden thing that we couldn't have in the 60s. Couldn't have it in the 70s. Couldn't have it in the 80s or the 90s. Even in the beginning of the year 2000. Oh, but now we can. I'm going for it. Going to stock up on weed. Is that the Jesus you serve? Oh, it's okay. It just alters your mind. THC starts playing with your head. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, right? There's nothing wrong with pain medication when you're terminal or when you come out of surgery. You know, you need something. There's nothing wrong with these things. But what Jesus are you serving? Are you seeking Jesus only to fix your marriage? What are you seeking? Someone to deliver you from an addiction? Someone to get you out of the financial mess that you're in? Someone to heal your guilty conscience? You know, I've known people who have sought Jesus for different things, and then once the Lord gives them what they want, they're gone. Remember a woman who... Uh, used to fellowship with us. She wanted a, a husband so bad. The Lord gave her a husband, and then she took off. He was like a, a talisman, like a like a rabbit's foot. 
give me what I want, Lord, and I'll serve you. And then the Lord, in his mercy and grace, he grants her her request. But what happens? Leanness comes to her soul because there was an idol in her heart. It wasn't Jesus. It was something else. But is he that way? Do, do we just seek him for what he can give to us? I want this, Lord. I want this. And then the, four, the Lord finally gives it to you, and you're like, see you later. Happens all the time. Are you seeking someone who can save your soul and bring you into everlasting life for eternity, forgiving you for all your sin, changing your life forever for his glory, becoming a disciple forever, and being an ambassador and faithful witness for Jesus? That's what I want to be. What are you seeking? Understand that Jesus just didn't come to save your soul. He came to redeem the entire package. Entirety, everything. Your body, soul, and spirit. Body and soul and spirit. You hear that? He came to redeem your body too, not just your soul. He's, not, he, he's concerned about your eternal well-being as, as he is. But he's concerned about you here and now, your body. Are you, is your, are you sanctified? Are you seeking Jesus for that? In Thessalonians it says, how, how, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you and completely, you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I like the phrasing of that. I like the order of it that Paul puts there. You don't hear that order. Notice, spirit, soul, and body. What do we say today? What, what have we been conditioned to say? Body, soul, and spirit. Oh, the body is the most important thing. If it feels good, do it, right? Body, soul, and spirit. But Paul says, no, you got it all wrong. It's just the opposite. Spirit, soul, and body's last. But in America, we put the flesh above the spirit. In most countries of the world, they do this too. It's not just us. So it's important. He came to redeem the whole entire package. And notice in verse 39, he said to them, Jesus said to these disciples, come and see. Notice the invitation. The invitation there. And a relationship with Jesus is an invitation to everyone. You know, Christianity is not just some kind of secret initiation. It's not some kind of secret religion. Some mystical thing like Freemasonry or even Mormonism. In Freemasonry, there used to be a Freemason temple right there in the center of Penfield, at Penfield Four Corners. Somebody bought it. Thank God they, they put an art shop there. I was so happy to see that. But inside, it's, everything is secret. Anybody who belongs here, everything is secret. There's secret handshakes, secret rituals. Shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Shh, shut up. Don't tell them about that special thing that we found out. And then they, they have these degrees. I'm a, what are you? 53rd degree mason oh yeah what are you oh newly initiated <laughs> in about 20 years you'll be where i am maybe right there's this hierarchy all these secret things and even in mormonism but christianity is not like that at all there's nothing secret everything is out in the open the crucifixion the resurrection was very very public very public, folks. Very public. But notice the invitation Jesus gives to them. Come and see. Doesn't it say in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good? Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 11? He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How many of you are heavy laden and sore and hurt 
Are you coming to Christ for solace, for your strength, for your everything? Or are you seeking something else? Are you seeking television? Are you seeking medication? Are you seeking a best friend? Are you seeking a, a spouse? What are you seeking? But Jesus says, come and see. The invitation is always there. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, Jesus says. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And this is one of the most wonderful things I love about Jesus. He welcomes everyone to come as they are, but leave changed. Right? We sing a song, come as you are. Yes, come as you are, no matter what you, I mean, you could be a, you could be a, a serial killer, you could be a rotten fornicator, you could be a homosexual, you could be a drug abuser, you could be a liar and a thief, but you know what, you've got, you're welcome here. You are. If you're coming with a heart that wants to change and you want to hear the truth, you're welcome. If you come in getting and in, 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 in creating problems, then you're not welcome. But if you actually are coming because you want to know the truth, it doesn't matter. This is a hospital. You're welcome. Come. The invitation is there. Come and see. Would to God that we reached out to our community and our family and friends and our neighbors and say, hey, come and see. Join us on Sunday morning. Take them. Bring them. Come and see. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. We believe that the other unnamed disciple, because we know that there's two, we believe the other one is John himself, John, John, the author of the gospel here. But notice, he first found his own brother. Andrew finds his, first, finds his own brother Simon, and he said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And that is the very natural thing to do. I remember when I got saved, the first thing I talked to, first one I talked to was my mom. I called her up on the phone. I was at Stetson University. I was living off, off campus in this house. And I remember I got radically saved. And the first thing I did is called my mother and told her with tears in my voice, in my eyes, telling her how thankful I was and what God had done. And I honestly wonder, I mean, I know she loves me. But I think at that time, I can't help but wonder if she's wondering, you know, what happened to my son? Things didn't change. It wasn't some phase that I was going through. It was the real deal. The Lord had cast the hook, and I swallowed the worm with the hook. He got me. He got me forever. But notice that Andrew brings, it's a very natural thing to tell people that are close to you. Have you told your family? Told your friends, your closest family? Have you talked to them about the Lord? Have you invited them to church? Invite them. Have them tune in. You know, I mean, right now, the whole world could be watching. You can send them a link. You can send them to our website. They can check it out. Maybe they'll come. Maybe they're in a different state. They can still tune in. Send them a link. Come and see. Come and see. If what I'm sharing with you is not true, then don't, don't say come and see. Say go away. But if it's true, if it's from the word of God, then come and see. Come and see. Notice the Messiah. This is the first time in the New Testament that this word occurs. The word Christ, Christos in the Greek, and Messiah, Messiah literally in the Hebrew, 
or the anointed one, they all mean the same thing. Whenever you see the anointed one, chances are it's speaking of Christos in the Greek, or if it's in Hebrew, it's the Messiah. It's the very same word that Daniel spoke of in Daniel 9.26. And after 62 weeks, remember we talked about uh, uh, the triumphal entry of Christ? Remember that Daniel 70th week? What did Daniel say? After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. There it is again. God in the flesh. That's who the Messiah is. He's not just a holy man. No, he's God in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And notice in verse 42, and he brought him, Andrew brought Simon or Peter to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Cephas is the Aramaic term, Aramaic name. But Jesus named He renamed him. I'm sure as the Lord was looking at this new disciple that would soon follow him, Jesus is looking at him and he goes, Oh, Peter, Simon, you're very unstable. You're unstable as water. But you're going to be a stone. You're going to be a Petros. You're going to be a stone. That's literally what Jesus said. You're going to be a stone. You're going to be a rock. The transforming work by my spirit, Peter, in your life is going to transform everything about you, and you're going to be a rock. You're going to be a rock. The following day, in verse 43, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Notice, this is the only one out of all these four men, Jesus says to Philip first, follow me. And within this word, follow me, literally means, the, 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 he, the, the Greek word there literally means to follow as a disciple. That's literally what the word means. So when Jesus is saying, follow me, he's not just saying, follow me for the day and then go about your business. No, follow me. I will disciple you. And he called Philip, the very first one. It reminds me of Ruth. Remember, Ruth the Moabitess, the Gentile, She comes back to Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Naomi tries to deter her from following her. She says, you know, go back home with your sister. You know, go back to your gods, your old lifestyle. And what did Ruth say? She said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will follow. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God and my God. And I love that because here's a young woman, a Gentile, who's willing. She's saying, disciple me, Naomi. I've had enough of the old ways. I know what's back in my culture. It's nothing but falsehood. It's nothing but idolatry. But I know and I believe in the one true God. I believe in this Jehovah that you speak of, this God of Israel, the God of Isaac and Jacob and Abraham. I believe in him. And it's kind of funny because Naomi wasn't the best witness, was she? (laughs) On her way back to Israel, she was a sour grape. I wonder at all that, that Ruth saw anything redeeming in her. I mean, if, if most people would say, goodness gracious, she's quite the load. I'm out of here. What's your name? Mara. Mom, Eeyore. You know, that's who Naomi was, just a stick in the mud. There was no witness in her at all, and yet, out of God's grace, somehow Ruth looks at her, looks at her life, looks at her culture, and it's like, there's something about this. And it's funny, she would be the ancestor of King David. 
the great-grandmother. And then Boaz would be his great-grandfather. Love that. But what is a disciple? What is a disciple? The very first time we see this word disciples in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus, seeing the multitudes there on the Mount of Beatitudes, he went up on a mountain and where he was seated and his disciples came into him. A disciple is really nothing more than a learner, somebody who is a pupil, a disciple. A disciple is one who invests much time with the master. A disciple listens intently at what the master says. A disciple is willing to assist the master in any way because they share a common goal and common purpose. A disciple is willing to do any task as it benefits the purpose or vision. And of course, a disciple is obedient to the master. Eager to learn the ins and outs of the trade, gains practical theoretical knowledge from the master, and one in training who will ultimately take the place of the master or carry on his trade or purpose. You know, recently I had a, a gentleman who did a lot of work for the church, and he came to my house, and he's doing some work uh, there as well. And I asked him, I said, do you have any help? And he goes, no, I can't get any help. He goes, nobody wants to do this stuff anymore. And this guy's a really gifted man, and he, he's really good at what he does. And, he's, and, I, and I was talking to him, and, and he was like, I wish I had somebody to, to, to disciple, you know, someone who would draw alongside, and I could show them the ropes, even a kid out of high school. He goes, but the way things are today, people are getting paid to stay home. They're getting paid more to stay home. Who's going to work when you got a, a check coming in the mail? He goes, I can't find anybody. I can't find any good people. And yet he's dying to disciple some young person, to show him the trade. And this man is very skilled. I tell you, if, I wasn't, if God hadn't called me to this, I'd be tempted to, because to, I, I would love to learn that kind of stuff because I know very little. But he wants someone to disciple, to show the ins and outs. How do you cut board? How do you cut things? How do you cut saw? Where do you, where, which side of the saw blade, you know, when you have your line there, it's got to be on the right side. Make sure, you know, there's all these little ins and outs and tricks of the trade, things like that. And he's just looking for somebody, a disciple, an apprentice, someone who is learning a trade from a skilled employer, having agreed to work for a fixed period of time, or an intern is really the same thing, a student or trainee who works sometimes without pay in order to gain work experience or satisfy a requirement or an understudy, someone who is, learns another's role in order to be able to act as a replacement at short notice. Paul also called that kind of person a bondservant. In the Greek, a doulos, one of those people who go to the, the doorpost and they'd put an awl through his ear and basically that was signifying, I'm going to be your servant forever. I like what I'm doing here. I want to continue doing what I'm doing here. I don't want to be released from, your, from what you do because I, I love you. You've been very good to me. And isn't Jesus like that? Paul, James, Peter, and Jude, they all start their letters like this. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. James says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude says, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. This idea of a bondservant is one who gives himself up to another's will, whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing his cause among men, devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interests. 
That's what a disciple is. That's what a bondservant is. And that's what Jesus was calling to himself. That's what Jesus wants for all of us. In Matthew chapter 10, it says that a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. And let me ask you the question this morning. Are you a disciple? Are you willing to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ? There are plenty. Do you understand there's a difference between a believer and a disciple? All of us are believers if we've received Christ, but out of all the believers in the world who have given their heart to Christ, only a subset of those are true disciples. It's possible to be a believer, but not a disciple. But let me suggest to you that if you're just a believer and you're not a disciple, you're not going to grow. You're going to shrink back from challenges. You're not going to take purity and holiness seriously. You probably won't read your Bibles very much or sporadically. Probably won't pray much. You might go to church a few times a year. You're going to heaven. Thank God for that. But you don't have a great deal of assurance of your salvation either because you just kind of accepted Christ. You believed in him, and that's good. Don't get me wrong, but there's more. And I think you understand what I'm saying. Don't just be a believer. Be a disciple. If you really believe it, why haven't you given everything toward it? Why haven't you given all of your life? And believe me, you can still work a normal job and give your heart completely over to the Lord. You don't have to go into full-time ministry in the the sense like I'm in full-time ministry. You can be a a marvelous witness on lunchtime, after work. You can be talking to your other employees. There are ways. And our very life is a witness. What kind of witness is it? Which are you? Are you a disciple or are you just a believer? Do you got your ticket stamped for glory, for heaven, and that's really all there is to it? Or are you all in? And let me suggest to you that if you're not all in, you're going to be one miserable person for the rest of your life. Because to be just a believer is sort of like licking a lollipop or licking an ice cream but not really tasting it. You take a lick and you want to devour the whole thing. You want it to go inside of you. You want the whole thing, that big thing you get at uh, um, Pittsburgh Dairy, you know, the sugar cone with the, the large, and they give you about that much of it. I know from experience. I don't just lick it once and go, that's kind of nice, but no thanks. No. I stick the thing in my face and make a pig of myself. Right? What are you? Are you the kind of person who has just kind of tasted, but you really haven't taken in? You're going to be miserable, trust me, because you're going to have no joy. You're going to have no witness in your heart that you even belong to him. Because when you're all in, the Lord does something really wonderful in your heart. And it's a secret. You don't know until you do. You don't know until you do it. Until you're all in, you won't understand. But when you're all in, you'll have the greatest assurance because God will meet you because you're not like the vine or the grape that's dead on the vine. You're not like the, you're not like the, 
the Dead Sea where you're receiving stuff from the top but nothing's coming out from underneath. No, you, you want to be like the, the Sea of Galilee. The waters from Mount Hermon are coming in. Fresh water filling the lake and you're, as much as you're getting from above, you're giving out from beneath and it goes down into the Jordan. But it gets landlocked in the, the Dead Sea. Are you the Dead Sea or are you the Sea of Galilee? Are you a believer or are you a disciple? Which are you? If I'm a disciple... Of Jesus, it means that I don't think of the things that Jesus said as just optional. Or I, I don't just obey the things that fit my lifestyle and my circumstances. If I'm a, a disciple of Jesus, it means that I don't pick and choose what parts of the Bible I read and submit myself to. If I'm a disciple of Jesus, it means that I don't try to twist the word of God to make it okay for me to continue to live in sin. Our mandate is to make disciples, to be a disciple, and to make disciples. What did Jesus say before he arose into heaven? Jesus came and spoke to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And here's the command. Here's the mandate. It's not an optional thing. No, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples, assuming you're one yourself. You can't make a disciple unless you're one yourself. Go and make disciples, notice of all nations, and then baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I love that. And what happens if we don't submit to that? The stakes are very high, folks. Do you understand that? Do you remember what happened? In Judges chapter 2, verse 10, there's a very scary verse. That brings chills into my heart every time I read it. It was speaking about Joshua. You know, when Moses was alive, the children of Israel were in line, you know. (laughs) And after he passed away, he passed the mantle to Joshua. And and as long as Joshua was alive, boy, they were kind of, you know, starched and looking forward and careful. But once he died... It says that when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. And why is that? Because the fathers weren't discipling their sons. The mothers weren't talking to their kids. The parents, the adults, weren't discipling their kids and their grandkids. How important is it for us? There's a report from the United States Department of Justice, and this is an old report. It was done back in 1998. It was statistics concerning fatherless children. It said this. It says, children from fatherless homes account for 63% of youth suicides, 90% of all homeless and runaway youths, 85% of all children that exhibit behavioral disorders, 71% of all high school dropouts, 70% of juvenile in-state operated institutions, 75% of adolescent patients in substance abuse centers, 75% of rapists motivated by displaced anger. And this was an old report. Homeless, or, you know, fatherless, kids. How important is discipleship today? Why did Jesus say to them, come and follow me? Come and see, because he had something to offer them, something better to give to them. And folks, you and I have so much to give. Some of you have, just even in the natural, in the skills and abilities and the wisdom that you've obtained, even in the world, is worth sharing with a young person. How much more than your Christian faith and what you know to be true in the word of God? So important, isn't it? So important. 
There are plenty of examples in the Bible where there was, a, there was an evil king and a son who came after him who was just as evil. <laughs> we see that. The king was evil. The son is growing up under his dad. He does the same thing. But occasionally there's these wonderful examples, rare And such is the case with Ahaz and Hezekiah. Ahaz was one of the worst kings in Judah. He was one of the worst. I mean, everything that you could possibly do to irritate God, he did it. But yet his son, Hezekiah, came along, and he was one of the reformer kings. Tore out all the altars of Baal that his father had set up, all the sundials, all the wicked, idolatrous practices that his father had done. He took away all that stuff and he got them back in order again, and God blessed the man. I don't know that Ahaz, Ahaz or Hezekiah, I'm sure, who was his mentor? By the grace of God, he turned out to be a good king. How'd how'd that happen? I wonder if there was somebody off in the wings, maybe one of the priests who was faithful. Who knows? But all is not lost. All is not lost. If you started and maybe maybe you're a great example, maybe you're not so good example, don't let the excuse of your mess ups in the past keep you from sharing in the right things with young people around you. And if you don't have kids, there are a lot of young kids in this, you know, here that, you know, you can talk to. You get their parents' permission, you never know. Sometimes there's single parents who has a son who doesn't have a father. Maybe take that son out to lunch. Talk to the parent. Talk to the mother. Okay, can I take your son out to go fishing? Can I take him out? We're going to go hunting. We're going to go to the you know, the go-kart track, whatever it may be. We're going to go do something. Can he come along with us? So many young men, young women, without dads, without moms, that need to be discipled. Are you a disciple? Are you willing to disciple others? I think of Moses and Joshua. What a great example. Certainly Joshua, growing up under Moses, seeing all that Moses went through with the people, all the things that God had done, He learned in real time all of these things, and that's really what an apprentice does. He's kind of waiting in the wings. He's he's watching as the the master is going through this, and Joshua is looking at Moses going, what are you going to do now? And Moses says, well, I'm going to go pray. That's what I'm going to go do. He's like, I'll join you. He learns. Oh, wait, when I have a problem, I'm not just going to go put it on my credit card. I'm going to go to the Lord. (laughs) That's what he does. That's how he learned. He was an apprentice. And then finally, Moses fades from the scene. Joshua is the guy that God puts his hand on. And this happens all throughout history. Paul and Timothy, Elijah and Elisha, even Pastor Jeff and myself. Little did he know. I don't think either one of us knew what the Lord had in plan. We we had no clue. Only three months before he left, it all came came together. I had no idea that God was going to call me to this. I had no idea that I was being discipled for 25 years. I was being discipled. I didn't even know it. By him. And I love that because it kind of just sneaks up and bites you. He had no idea. It's not like something you set out to do because you want to disciple. I want to disciple somebody, so therefore I'm going to call. No, it's just a very natural thing. There's, There's people in this fellowship that I know where that is happening. An older man is taking a younger man under his wing.
But are you willing to be the one who is doing the discipling? Are you too busy? And what are you busy with? How important is what you're doing compared to pouring into How important is it? In verse 44, it says, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I think that's interesting because he's telling him, Hey, this is the one who Moses talked about. And certainly there are a number of scriptures. We're not going to go through any of these today. Time really doesn't permit because we're going to take communion here shortly. But when you look at all these things in the law, I mean, there's, this is just one of them that came. I just randomly picked a handful from the law and also from the prophets concerning Jesus specifically. And that's what Philip says. He found Nathaniel and said, this is the one who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote about. And Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It wasn't a very popular town. It was one of those towns that when people heard it, they kind of frowned upon it. And Nathanael said to him, or excuse me, Philip finally said to Nathanael, come and see. Again, the invitation is there. Do you see that? I want you to see something really wonderful. If you look in verse 39, we saw Jesus' invitation from those men to himself. Jesus invites, and now as a result of them being invited, what does Philip say? To Nathaniel, come and see. Do you see the progression? Jesus says, come and see. Now I tell somebody else, hey, come and see. Do you see how that's discipling? I'm leading them. Not to me, not to anyone else, not to some evangelist, not some great teacher. I'm leading them to the great teacher, Jesus Christ. Have we stopped inviting people to Jesus? Have we stopped saying, come and see? For many, you know, for maybe for some of you this morning here, you're thinking, you know, that, that's true, I haven't. I've been very busy, I've been very distracted. I don't talk to people about Jesus anymore. I certainly don't invite them to say, come and see. I don't invite them to church. I want to invite, I want to encourage you to do that. We're not trying to build a mega church. This church is not big enough for that. And thank God, because with a big church can be a big headache, but that's God's business. But here's the thing. We should be inviting people. Come and see. Bring them over to your house. Tell them, come and see. They're not going to appreciate you. They're not going to ask you for the invitation. You have to invite them. You have everything they have. You have this treasure in earthen, in an earthen vessel, the spirit of God within you. Come and see, come and see, come and see. When's the last time you said, come and see? Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. This word, this phrase could actually be translated. Behold, an Israelite in whom is no Jacob. Because remember, Jacob was a deceitful man. In fact, his name means footcatcher. Supplanter, thief. That's what his name meant. Now, this is going to freak Nathaniel out because when Jesus says this, Jesus is aware of something that Nathaniel didn't quite understand. And you're going to see the response and you're going to see something very interesting because Nathaniel said to him then, How do you know me? And when Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
And Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Why would he respond like that after Jesus just said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile? Because Jesus, we're going to see in the next, in verse 51, Jesus knew what Nathanael was thinking out of sight from Jesus. Jesus knew he was under, under a tree, which he couldn't see at the moment. That, that freaked him out to know that God knew, that he knew where he was. But he also knew what he was thinking. Because when he, he Jesus answered and said, Because I said unto you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And then verse 51, And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Does that ring a bell? Genesis chapter 28, when Jacob was running, and he put his head on the pillow, remember Jacob's ladder? Nathanael was completely blown away because not only was, when, before even Jesus knew where he was, he says, you were under a fig tree. I knew what you were thinking about, Nathanael. And Nathanael's going, what? Were you in, were you in Genesis 28, weren't you, about Jacob, in whom is no guile? And Nathaniel's going, oh my goodness. <laughs> Only God can do that. And it's true, because what is the very focus behind John's gospel? Here it is. The very theme of John's gospel. That's what netted Nathaniel. That's what got him into the net. And why? All these things that we're going to be reading about as we get into the, the gospel of John. Why? These These things that um, John picked, they're cherry-picked out of all the things, different from the Synoptic Gospels, different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These are very specific to point us to the truth that Jesus is who he said he was and is the Son of God. And all of these things are going to blow people's minds. You really are who you said. Well, of course. Here it is. But these things are written that you may believe what? That Jesus is just a good man? That he's just a good, uh, you know, prophet? Just a decent carpenter, really good guy, probably great for the Cub Scouts. No, <laughs> that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God, equal with God the Father, and that believing you might have life in his name and no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But the name of Jesus Christ, amen? And so be encouraged this morning. You know, as, as we've looked at this chapter, we've looked at the beginning of the disciples. And be challenged, folks, about disciple. Being a disciple yourself, not just a believer. Don't be satisfied just being a believer and having your, your passport stamped for glory. Don't settle for that. Do not settle for that. Take the bait. <laughs> Swallow the hook. Be all in. Be all in. Don't just nibble on the ice cream. Take it all. Take it all. Do not delay. Give everything, your heart, your mind over to Christ. And you will be blessed. And you will have the greatest assurance. When you're walking with Jesus, he's always confirming to you 
even more so, you're doing a great job. I'm so proud of you. He gives you that assurance. Even when everyone else around you is like, you're a real nutcase. It's okay. I don't care being called a nutcase. You can call me whatever you want. I know where I'm going and I know who I believe. And for the once in my life, I got my head on straight. Everything makes sense to me now. The truth is very obvious now, isn't it to you? As you read the word of God, doesn't the truth, doesn't it just resound? It changes everything. It's right. It even feels right. But get all in. Don't just be a believer. Be a disciple. And then as you become a disciple, you disciple others. Disciple others. If Sarah could come up, Sarah's going to lead us in a song of worship, and while she does, if you could come on up and take the elements, bring them back to your chair, and we'll take them together, okay?